The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been walking through the letter to the Hebrews, and the original recipients of this letter are Jewish Christians, thus the name of the letter. And in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, we learn that they've been persecuted and many have been imprisoned for their faith. And so the author, in part, one of his purposes in writing the letter is to encourage them to remain faithful to Jesus despite all the hardship and persecutions they are enduring because Jesus is of supreme worth. He is supremely valuable. Jesus is supremely valuable and he lays out many reasons why that is throughout the letter. He says that Jesus isn't just another prophet, you know, in a row, but he is the one to whom all the prophets point as the supreme revelation of God, the divine son of God. But Jesus is also a better deliverer. Moses was a great deliverer, but Jesus frees his people from a harsher slavery of sin and death, and he leads his people to a better promised land than Moses did. And in Jesus, we have hope for a new creation. He also says Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron's priesthood, for he offers a once and for all sacrifice for sin. And therefore, in Jesus, we have complete forgiveness and eternal access to God. So after elevating Jesus through all of these comparisons and contrast, showing how Jesus is a better Moses, a better Aaron, a better, better revelation, he encourages them to hold fast to Jesus no matter how hard life gets. And he warns them and reminds them that it is impossible for those who ultimately reject Jesus to be saved that turning away from Jesus would be the highest of all follies. And in chapter 11, uh, this community of believers is encouraged to hold fast by faith, just as the heroes of old did. And as Dr. Walker preached last week, they are encouraged to run a race and run the race set before them with endurance, taking note that they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses from Abel to Noah to Moses to the judges and prophets and kings. And these witnesses testify through their own perseverance that, yes, you can finish the race despite all the persecutions and hardships that you'll face in life. But he gives an even better motivation than looking back to the hearers of faith. He says, we can look directly at Jesus himself, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And in Jesus, we find all the encouragement and the strength we need to endure any and all persecution and hardship. And so that brings us up to Hebrews chapter 12. This week, we pick up in verses 3 and 4. So turn to your Bibles, if you have them, and follow along as I read. Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint it. 
in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Let me pray. God, thank you for these words of encouragement. We praise you that you are a God who cares for us and that you especially care for those of us who have grown weary and are faint-hearted. Many here this morning feel a weariness that is lodging deep in their bones and they have grown faint-hearted. I pray particularly for them that this morning would be an encouragement. And whether we're in that place or we're in a place of uh, real encouragement, Lord, we know some days in the future, maybe not too far soon, we too will grow weary. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear how you meet us, how you encourage and strengthen us and give us confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 12 verses three and four clarifies two things. First, the gravest danger we face from suffering and persecution. And second, the greatest protection that we are given. First, the gravest danger we face. The gravest danger that this community of Jewish Christian faced has been stated in the letter over and over again. And, and the danger is not the external perils that come from living you know, life in a broken world and running the race, but, but the internal perils of an unbelieving heart. And we see that stated in, in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, be careful not to drift away from what you have heard, from what you have heard about Jesus and his sufficiency for you and his superiority over what you used to live for and trust in. And then in chapter 3, verses 12, he says, be careful that you take care to repent of an unbelieving heart because if you don't, it will lead you to fall away from the, from the living God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, if you refuse to believe in God's promises, and then in chapter 4, verses 11, and you fail to strive to enter God's rest, then you may not ultimately enter God's rest. And in chapter 12, verse 15, he says... And by that, you may fail to obtain God's grace because you allow a a root of separation to grow, a root of bitterness that springs up, as happened with Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So so his chief concern is identified in verse 3. It's growing in weariness and faintness of heart. And he's saying that weariness, that faintness of heart, you can't let that go unaddressed or unattended. Because weariness and faintness of heart can, can cause people to make infinitely foolish decisions. See, the biggest risk in, is neglecting to turn to Jesus when the inevitable suffering, persecution, and hardship of life settles upon you. And left unaddressed, weariness and, and, and faintness of heart from, from persecution, hardship, and suffering will, will tempt some to let go of Jesus That's a terrible idea because Jesus alone is the one through whom we receive all of God's blessings. He he alone is the one that can give us lasting peace with God and restore that peace one day to the entire cosmos, which we will enjoy. And he gives us access to, to the Father daily to help in time of need. And so we must be careful that our weariness and faintness of heart doesn't tempt us away from Jesus. Are you weary 
and faint-hearted? Are you in a season of life like that? Maybe you thought life as a follower of Jesus would turn out differently than it has. Maybe a child who you raised to fear God has rejected all that you've taught them and cut off relationship with you. And you are faint-hearted and weary. Maybe a spouse who took vows to love you and cherish you and had a common bond with Christ has devolved into grievous sin and, and has left the church or left you and you suffer abuse or abandonment or, or maybe you suffered the separation of adultery. Maybe you're suspicious of that, that being outspoken about your faith at work has cost you a promotion that you dearly were hoping for and that loss of opportunity is no small thing. See, are you weary and faint-hearted about your walk with Christ? Maybe you simply had an expectation that the Christian life should be easier than it is. You thought that the neighbors you've been loving for five or ten years and so diligently serving and watching their kids and and sharing about the love of Christ, that by now that they would have come to faith, but you recently overheard them mocking you and, and mocking the faith. Maybe you thought that the the righteous mission you've been so diligently helping to advance would have made more of an impact, but you see for every two steps forward, there's one and a half steps back, and you're weary and faint-hearted. Now, being weary and faint-hearted is not a problem. It's the inevitable result of living life in a broken world. But the question is, what are you doing with it? Where are you going with your weariness and faint-heartedness? In your weariness and faint-heartedness, are you beginning to yield to a spirit of apathy and indifference? Are you beginning to embrace people and situations that feed distractions that keep you from wrestling with the one person in the universe you need to be wrestling with? Are you nursing a spirit of bitterness, maybe rehearsing not a completely honest narrative to make yourself feel entitled in your anger toward others or toward God? Are you beginning to make small compromises in your personal walk with God, of avoiding God's word and turning to other voices for perspective and comfort? Are you avoiding prayer, refusing to honestly bring your complaints and requests and praises to God directly? Are you growing more and more friendly with illicit pleasures that dull your conscience, illicit lies that feed your pride and self-pity? See, where are you going with that weariness? To summarize, despite what you might think, despite appearances of what's going on here in the early Jewish community that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, The gravest danger they face is not the rebellious, broken world they live in. It's not the inevitable trials of the fall. It's not the pushback they're getting from these Judaizers. It's not the persecution and hostility from sinners. The the gravest danger comes from separating yourself from the only one able to sustain you through any hardship and to strengthen your heart with renewed hope. And so to him we must hold fast so that we do not become overwhelmed with despair or bitterness or a sense of learned helplessness. And this leads to our second point. If that's our greatest danger, well, what's the greatest protection that we're given against this danger? And that's given in verse 3. Consider him who endured such 
from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. See, the ultimate protection we, we are given from, from this weariness of soul is found in a person. It says, consider him. When, when the Hebrews were faced with a crisis of faith from the persecution and false teaching, the writer does not remain academic about this. He doesn't simply say, well, remember that your doctrine is better than their doctrine. Even though it is superior, and he spilled a lot of ink to show how it's superior, but he says, consider him. He doesn't simply say, consider that your persecution has purpose and meaning, even though it does, but he says, consider him who endured such hostility, such persecution. And he doesn't consider, you know, he doesn't say, consider such and such, and whatever you do will endure. Rather, he says, consider him who endured for you. Consider his faithfulness. What does this mean? To rightly consider Jesus is never less than holding to right belief or right doctrine. That's for certain. But it is more. It is about knowing God intimately and personally and relationally. See, the center of Christianity is not a what, but a who. It's not a a belief system we absorb from our surrounding culture or in Sunday school. It's not an ideology that we grow up with. It's not a philosophy or a worldview that we master, even though it is those things. It's not primarily or centrally those things. It is not about a what, but a who. A real person, a living, loving, glorious Savior and Lord that we come to know, abide in, and trust. And while you cannot live without ideology and philosophy and without doctrines and without an explanation of why things work out the way they do, it's not our ideology that loves us. It's not your doctrine that loves you. Only a person can do that. Jesus is the ideal one who saves completely and loves perfectly. And so we must not confuse our love of philosophy and our love of doctrine for our love of Jesus. Seek wisdom, yes. Cherish it, yes. But remember, wisdom springs from a source, a person. And therefore, ultimately, wisdom is not so much a thing to possess, but a person to know and love and worship and discover and revel in and serve. Jesus is the manifest wisdom of God revealed to us. Now, doctrine reveals what we believe about God. But our doctrine must lead to worship and trust. We cannot simply be content with knowing about God, but we must long to know him, to stand in all of him, to serve and worship him. So how does this apply? If you are trying to navigate a crisis of faith, understanding why is God allowing certain things, never depersonalize things with God. See, many people think that As they look at suffering in the world or in their own life, you know, they think, well, how how could there be a God of love and wonder and grace and power? And many assume that they, they, they could only believe in such a God if someone presents to them an inescapable airtight argument, an explanation or philosophy that they could fully comprehend. And if you've ever taken a philosophy, you know, class in college, you run into a lot of people like that. But what if that's not how it works with God? Dr. Kim, uh, Dr. 
Tim Keller said it this way, what if instead of being an inescapable argument, of being given, excuse me, an inescapable argument, we are given an inescapable person? What if the assurance about God that we seek is expressed not through watertight arguments, but through a watertight person, not a human construction or philosophy, but a divine revelation, a Savior who has come to us, Emmanuel, God with us. See, do you want to know if there's a God of glory, of love and power, despite all the sin and suffering and persecution and brokenness that you see constantly in this world? Well, look to Jesus. Millions have looked to him and found him to be inescapable. His moral beauty, his wisdom, his power, and his grace. He not only gives meaning in the midst of pain and suffering, but promises to ultimately defeat all pain and suffering. And his resurrection is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The apostle Paul discovered the glory of God, and he was a scholar of scholars. But he discovered the glory of God, not primarily in the doctrines of man, but in the face of Jesus Christ. And he writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, this same God has shown in our hearts and, and gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Are you looking for answers in a watertight argument, an explanation for all the stuff that's happening in your life and why God allows certain things? What if that's not how God communicates? Tim Keller said it this way, it would only make sense after all. I mean, if God actually provided an explanation for all the reasons why he allows things to happen as they do, it would be too much for our finite brains. So what if God, instead of giving us a watertight argument, gives us a watertight person that we can know and trust and look to? And see, that's the hope of Christianity. It's that as we look to him, the face of Jesus Christ, we can know there is a God of glory and love and power and grace. And the resources we need to overcome weariness and faint-heartedness and doubt and unbelief amidst the hostilities of life is given in a trustworthy person a watertight person. See, if you watch your doctrine closely, you'll never depersonalize your faith in God. But you'll look at the face of Jesus Christ and place your hope there. Now, why can we trust this person, Jesus? One of the main reasons we can trust him is because he's not some distant deity, but he is God with us and ever present Lord and suffering Savior. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. See, we can trust him because he's already led the way in this race. He's not exempted himself from the suffering and the persecution, but he entered into it himself and he endured. And the hostility Jesus endured was three things. It was direct, it was undeserved, and it was extreme. First, it was direct. It was directly personal. Look at verse 3. He endured such hostility against himself. Against himself. Jesus was the focus of this hostility. Now, sometimes we are caught up indirectly in the hostility between various power players, but this hostility was against Jesus. It was direct, it was personal, it was against him, and that made it all the more grievous and heartbreaking. 
Listen, it's, it's one thing for your friend to snap at you because they're angry with their boss. That's grievous and annoying. But for your friend to, to really go after you because they, they, they're grieved with you and they feel hostile toward you, that's a whole nother level. That's the hostility that Jesus endured. It was direct and personal. Second, it was undeserved. Notice this hostility was completely, not, partial, not partially undeserved. It was from sinners. Now, those in the hall of fame of faith or the hearers of the faith that you know, we've been reading about in chapter 11 and Dr. Light and Dr. York and Dr. Walker have mentioned the past couple weeks, yes, they also endured hostility from sinners. Jacob from Esau and Laban, Samson from the Philistines, David from Saul. But none of these men and women of faith were simply victims of hostility. None of them were completely innocent of all their suffering and hardship and persecution. They they played a role of both victim and perpetrator. Jacob's deceit had caught up with him as he lived with Laban. Samson's arrogance and folly had brought about his own destruction. David's divided divided his sons through his own lust and, and selfishness and his kingdom. But see, the hostility that Jesus endured was completely undeserved. He was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. Jesus remained perfectly and faithfully obedient. So, so the hostility Jesus faced was direct and completely undeserved, very different from ours. Third, it was extreme. Notice how it compares to what the early Jewish Christian community had endured. Verse 4, in their struggle against sin, that is the sin of those who persecuted them without cause, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. To the point of shedding blood. They had suffered as a community of Jewish Christians. They had lost property. They'd been in prison. That's no small thing. But they, it was nothing compared to the suffering Jesus endured. Jesus shed blood. He was beaten, tortured, pierced by those who should have worshipped him. Jesus suffered and died the cruelest death imaginable. How does this all fit together? What's the significance of all this? See, the resources were given so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted under the hardships of life are found in a perfectly trustworthy person who proves he is trustworthy because he suffers with us and he suffers for us. He not only suffers with us and for us, but he also redeems and reframes all our suffering so that we never have to grow weary, but we can be confident and strong. How do we see this? Well, first, he suffers with us. You can trust Jesus because he's not simply a sympathetic lover who can imagine what you're going through, who can imagine what it's like to walk in your shoes. But Jesus actually came and he walked in our shoes and he knows suffering. And like I just meant, his suffering was so much greater than any suffering that you will endure or persecution you will endure. A lot of the suffering we bring on ourselves, even the little sufferings we get from you know, our non-Christian neighbors, we like to think it's just because we're Christians. No, it's because we're impatient, self-righteous Christians oftentimes. But see, Jesus, he was empathetic. He suffered with us. He knows what it means to walk in our shoes. He knows what it means to suffer even more than we did, to be betrayed and to be completely innocent. And he never asks us to go where he has not already gone. And so you can trust him fully, even when you must live without an explanation for why certain things are happening in your life. 
But not only does he suffer with us, he suffers for us. And so you can trust not just his empathetic love, but his transforming power. He suffered for us to ultimately end all suffering because he paid for the penalty of our sin in full so that the wages of sin, which is death, can be completely undone and newness of life can begin to spring up all around, turning into eternal life. And in power, Jesus now reigns over death in newness of life. And so he suffers with us and he suffers for us. And those things together totally redeem and reframe how we view the various hardships and sufferings and persecutions we must endure. See, the cross and the empty grave, they transform everything. They prove that Jesus brings the fullness of joy, not just despite our suffering, but he often brings the fullness of joy actually through that suffering, that very thing you think he could never use for good. He actually used it as the instrument to get greater joy, greater hope, and a greater deliverance into your life. There's a movie that I love to watch called Signs. It stars Mel Gibson, who plays the role of an Episcopal priest. Uh, This Episcopal priest loses his faith after his wife dies in a car crash. It's it's a depressing movie. Uh, He takes his children after his wife's death and they move to a farm. Uh, His son has a life-threatened asthmatic condition. His daughter has a severe obsessive compulsive personality disorder and so she leaves glasses of water all over the farmhouse which is really annoying and uh and then his his depressed brother whose career is in shatters as a as a uh, professional baseball player moves in with him. It's really a depressing movie. And and to make matters worse, aliens invade the world and want to kill everyone. But there's this twist at the end of the movie, and that's why I love this movie, and it's become a blockbuster. And when you get the twist, the movie flips on the head, and and the joy knocks the wind out of you. Because you, you begin to see the puzzle pieces come together, and each and every one of these little signs, which is the name of the movie, these these horrible, terrible things become the means by which deliverance is granted and joy is restored. The son's asthma prevents him from breathing in the alien's poisonous gas. The daughter's tendency to leave glasses of water all over the house allows them to fight back when the aliens break into the farmhouse because they're they're toxic to the aliens and and water kills the aliens. And his brother, who is really good at swinging a baseball bat and has them around the house, it proves really destructive against the head of aliens. and, And as you realize that each and every one of these little things fits together to bring about a deliverance in spite of all the, not just in spite of all the hard things, but because of the hard things... Joy sinks in and overwhelms you. And the, and the same is true with the gospel. You know, when Jesus showed himself to the disciples, he said, here, put your finger in my hand and your hand in my side. And, and he did that because, yes, they were doubting, is this really you? But, see, they, they thought those nail-pierced hands and that wound in his side, that, that was the end of their dream. They, they had wasted their dream. There's no way God could work through this terrible persecution, this utter defilement of a crucifixion, the loss of their best friend. 
and teacher. And Jesus says, no, I want you to see the very thing that you thought was going to rob you of all joy and hope. Uh Uh-uh. It's through those things that a superior joy, a lasting joy, an internal joy comes. And if God can do that in the life of Jesus, that's what he promises to do in the life of his followers. To make all things new. And this is a wonderful hope. And my prayer is is that for many of you here this morning who are overwhelmed and weary and you are faint-hearted, that this morning you would see from these promises of Scripture that the very thing you can't make sense of, and believe me, you don't have a brain to make sense of it, and even if someone explained it to you, you wouldn't understand. But there is going to come a day when in glory you're going to look back and you're going to see not just how God brought greater joy into your life despite those things, but that he was able to bring greater joy through those things, a greater salvation through those things. That's the hope of the gospel. Let us pray. Thank you, God for being concerned about our weary hearts and giving us exactly what we need. Not an airtight explanation that helps us make sense of all the details, but an airtight person that we can trust even when we don't have the full explanation. Thank you for sending us not just a person, but the perfectly trustworthy person, the Savior, who does not stand aloof from the pain and suffering and persecution he calls us to endure, but he enters in and he suffers with us. And he shows that he's the perfectly empathetic lover. But more than that, he suffers for us because he came not just to love us, but to end suffering so that one day there will be no more tears. And he suffers with us and he suffers for us so that even now, even today, he can reframe our suffering. That we can see that one day, the things that we think are killing us, the things that are exhausting us, that we might see you work uniquely through those things to bring a fuller joy, a fuller deliverance, and a more glorious hope. Oh God, I pray particularly that you would give this strength, work out these truths in our hearts, particularly those who are at a season of weariness and who are faint-hearted. Help them to trust in this so that they might be refreshed and given confidence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.